Ethan and Benjamin Castle are Americans. Watching the footy. Liam Ryan saying kick it my way. I want to jump over the pack and here he comes. Oh, Ryan! This is Buddy Franklin! This is the greatest showman! Got the handball off to Myers. Myers looking for the lead of Stengel. Gee, they're good. Gee, they're sharp. Razzle Dazzle Rioli. Oh, who else? McDonald. Timberwolf. From inside the centre square. time of day everyone benjamin castle here alongside my brother ethan for episode 117 of americans watching the footy our round 17 recap ethan is back from his likely trip yeah and i'll be in person for the next i think five episodes including this one something like that before another spooktacular that is correct i call a lot of my trips spooktaculars because as eric andre pointed out spooktaculars don't just have to be for halloween do you have an overarching theme for round 17? I know you try to do this sometimes, Ethan. Uh, just a lot of great shots of middle fingers in the crowd, which, as we'll get to at the very end, is one of our kind of honorable mentions for the main character this week. I think we did have a pretty clear main character. Well, in terms of things on the oval and then off the oval as well, I guess. But neither of those occurred until the weekend. So let's start with Richmond defeating Sydney, the Tigers... 12-16-88, defeating the Swans, 11-9-75. Do you regard this as an elimination final, in a sense? I mean, looking at the latter, Sydney now sit in 15th, but they still only sit 8 points out. It's just there are a lot of teams for them to jump. I didn't think they're completely dead, but I think they need so many things to break their way, and that just hasn't happened this year. I do feel supremely confident that the 2024 Sydney Swans will be very good in close games. Because as we've seen, close games are kind of a thing that don't hold up year to year, and this year they've sucked in close games. And meanwhile, 2024 Port will suck in that regard? Yeah, or normalize. I mean, other thing going against the Swans, obviously, is how difficult their schedule is. I mean, Frio's looking easier round 19, even though that is a trip to Perth. But they've got the Dogs this coming Thursday, Essendon did round 20, Sydney Derby, 26, they should win because it's at the show round. Gold Coast, they should beat. At Adelaide and hosting Melbourne to end the season, it's going to be tough for them because they pretty much need to win out or maybe at the most lose one game. Early injuries were a theme in this game. I'm talking like 78 seconds for a debut. Yeah, felt bad for Jacob Bauer. That sucked. Yeah, had a couple good kicks early on, but seemed to overextend his hamstring pretty early and was subbed out for Jack Ross around halfway through the first quarter. As it turns out, Ross was Richmond's leading scorer and played quite well throughout the game. So kind of a sliding doors moment there. Ross kicking 2-2 from 20 disposals and gaining 518 meters. That's a kind of performance that should put him back into the 22. This felt to me like a game that Sydney should have won. Like, I, I went back and watched this game after the fact. I slept through most of it. Woke up and saw the score a couple times and then saw a pissed-off John Longmire postgame. I needed to sleep that night because I had a long-ass day of driving ahead, so it was it was the right decision. But, like, watching this game, 
it never felt until the final couple of minutes like a game Richmond was going to win, right? Or how, how did you kind of experience it in real time? I mean, I've, I've watched this whole thing live. I liked where Richmond were going in terms of, I mean, everything except their kicking accuracy, considering they were struggling on set shots all night. They had kicked no goals four from set shots in the second quarter. In the later part of the third quarter, they were 2-7 for the game from 11 set shots, but they've been generating more shots the whole night, and they stopped the Swans' momentum in the second quarter. Swans were up 26 at their peak near the middle of the second quarter, and that was after a period where the Tigers' pressure had dropped pretty dramatically. It had dropped by 40 points on the Fox footy gauge between the middle of the first quarter and the end of the quarter, but when Richmond started pressuring again, they were able to create clearances off that, and they ended up being plus 16 in clearances, plus 12 out of the center. And they also were stronger on ground balls, and there were a lot of them in the 450. And once Jake Lloyd was concussed by Toby Nankervis, more on that in a second, it made it really difficult for the Swans to be able to defend well on the ground. Lloyd is probably their best ground ball player, aside from maybe Robbie Fox in terms of their true defenders. And so having to kind of divide that up between more aerial players like Tom McCartan, Lewis Melkin, and Aaron Francis was quite awkward. So I mentioned that early injury, that there were early subs for both sides. So Lloyd was concussed by a pretty nasty man, Curvis Bump. I expect three weeks, but I wouldn't mind if it was four. I expect three as well. Clearly late and high. Careless. I don't get how some of this is defined as being careless, though. I'm unclear as to some of that ruling. Like when it when it's a clear late bump like that, and you're going past the ball for it, how is it not regarded as intentional? I don't know, but it was... It was stupid. It was unnecessary. You know why I thought Sydney were going to win this game was that they had sequences. Like, after Buddy had a couple of really bad fumbles, they still ended up getting the next goal. And it's just like, all right, if you're getting goals like this and you're doing everything you can to lose this game but are still managing to kind of land on your feet, you're, you're going to win this game, right? That's, that's at least what it felt like. Maybe. In terms of Buddy, he did get a couple, but... I was really impressed by the work that Tyler Young did on him. His best game defensively, I would say, he won that matchup overall, forced some fumbles, forced a lot more contests than I think people expected. It was also clear, you know, Buddy wasn't the only target there, but I think he was still being looked for too much in the fourth quarter in particular. It's sad just seeing the way he's kind of been fumbling a lot of these marks. If it's not overhead, he's having more difficulty with it. He can still mark overhead just fine, but... His fumbles were definitely a part of the Swans being unable to get a lot of convincing entries. They had a tough time in the second half going from the defensive half into the forward 50, and that was something with which Richmond had a much easier time. Other than um, Young on Franklin, there was another matchup that I think really tilted the game in Richmond's favor, and that was Shea Bolton often playing on Errol Golden. It was the first time Golden had been quieted in a while, still got a lot of the ball, had a goal from 31 disposals and gained 815 meters, but I didn't find as many of his kicks really being effective, maybe not necessarily the effective kick stat term, but to more dangerous spots in general and angles where the Swans weren't going to be able to make as much out of them. So good on Shane Bolton for pressing Golden like that. Bolton had 31 disposals as well, didn't score a goal, kicked no goals too, but 17 contested possessions, 10 score involvements, Nine clearances in 598 meters and 10 coaches votes, I believe. Yeah, 10 coaches votes. If this were three years ago, they probably would have just given him to Dusty by default. 
And Dusty was good, don't get me wrong, a goal from 29 and another very involved game in the front half. I've noticed that in these past couple games where Richmond have been playing in wetter conditions, thinking back to Trent Koch's 300 against the Saints, those conditions have suited his play style really well. This is kind of a reverse game in terms of, like, you look at the trends in scoring, the score after each quarter, Swans by 15 and quarter time, 18 and half time, 8 and three quarter time, and then Richmond winning by 13, almost feel like you you switch these teams and the scores would make a lot more sense based on what we've seen for the past few years out of Richmond. And it wasn't until the final minutes that Richmond were able to put it away. Great back and forth action throughout the fourth quarter where, where Shea Bolton, Nick Flawstone, and Jack Graham really combined to make a difference. Graham tied the game at 74 with just over 14 minutes left. It was off another forward half intercept, a really important part of their comeback and taking the lead in the fourth. A Jack Ross behind gave the Tigers their first lead a couple minutes later. A behind each way, and then finally, in the final minute, Bolton got a really clever soccer away off of a ruck contest off a throw, and I, at first I thought it wasn't intentional. Then I saw the way he stuck out his foot, and I realized, no, he tried to get that into space, and it came straight to Jack Graham, who gave Richmond a seven-point lead with 52 seconds left. I was super impressed because it felt like for a good stretch there, Richmond were doing everything they possibly could, just playing not to lose, which is tough to do when you're only up by a point, and that they ended up getting a goal out of that whole stretch and kind of reversing the field really surprised me. They also had a couple of goals in the fourth that were headed just against the run of play. And I know you mentioned both Vlastone and Graham, who really were the difference makers when it got down to it. And I'm surprised neither of them got any coaches' votes. I think maybe it was a lack of consistent strong performance for uh, for Graham. Boston, another strong game, had another goal. 18 disposals, 8 intercepts, and 8 marks. Richmond are at their best when he's controlling the game from halfback. You know, you have Dylan Grimes playing deeper. Yes, he's a captain, but the real defensive leader at this point is Nick Boston. It did feel fitting to me with the strong performance he had that Martin got the last goal, though off the center clearance, where one thing puzzled me. So, Hayden McLean was contesting the center bounce with Toby Nankervis. McLean let go of him after it looked like he had wrapped him up. Do you think he was afraid of a free kick or was expecting a whistle? I found that very puzzling, but got it into the 50, and Dusty read the front of the contest. I, I wasn't sure. I mean, the game was already pretty much over at that point. It would have taken an insane sequence of events for the Swans to get two scores of any sort. It's a question that I would have asked an impressive though about, you know, why do you let go there? It's obviously been a really frustrating year for the Swans. I think you, you could really see that in how in uh, John Longmire's face. Oh yeah, happy 300th game to him coming this week. And that's at home, right? Yes, that's Thursday against the Dogs. Our last Thursday night footy of the year against teams that often play on weeknights. It's a fitting one. Yeah, looking at where Sydney are now, it's going to be tough to get back from this. Meanwhile, Richmond, four points out, sitting in 12th. In a lot of ways, this felt like a very Richmond win. It's so funny that this was the sort of game that we felt like they would lose for a couple of years. And now they're just back to doing their normal thing. I think as some of the older players from their premiership teams have since retired, I think it's given us a chance to appreciate guys like Nick Blostone more who has gone from being one of the guys to one of the guys, if, if that makes any sense. I mean, he is one of their three-time premiership players as, and was an All-Australian our first year watching in 2020. But I think the first time we really took notice of him 
was when he got knocked out of that grand final. You know, it wasn't until 2021 that we decided to get watch AFL and start watching every game as we do now. Some other stat lines that I did not mention yet for the Tigers. Tim Taranto with a behind from 29 disposals and 9 clearances. That behind made it 76-74. Dion Prestia, 22 disposals on his return. Still got a lot of the ball, and clearly they're they're managing his time in the middle well, along with Jacob Hopper being in there as well. Toby Nancurvis kicked 1-1 from 33 hitouts and 19 disposals, but he'll be out these next three weeks. Disposal efficiency inside 50 went Richmond's way, which, based on what I said earlier, was not a surprise. Richmond, 56.1%. Sydney, just 40.8%. Really having trouble finding that last connection inside 50 for much of the night. The last three quarters, really. You mentioned Errol Golden. Ollie Florence, 30 disposals and 10 marks. Luke Parker, 28 disposals. Callum Mills, 21 disposals, 7 tackles. Isaac Heaney, 3 goals, 17 disposals, 9 contested possessions. It is worth noting Chad Warner did miss this game. Yeah, missed his second game in a row with a calf injury. Here's to the online return for Thursday, I think. You know the other takeaway I got out of this game? Yeah. I realized that Liam Baker is short. He's only 5'8". Just when I saw like the Tigers in the circle together after, I was like, damn, you're, you're really short. He's one of the best short players in the league. I'd say along with Caleb Daniel. I forget who it was who was making the case to make him their next captain. I think he did sign a contract extension. Important for them to get their important out-of-state players to stay signed on. And I guess he's not coming home anytime soon. Western Bulldogs 11-11-77 defeated by Collingwood 13-11-89. But this was not your signature close Collingwood win. The lead got all the way up to 38 in the fourth quarter. Collingwood did their typical thing, intercept, send everyone forward. The Bulldogs did not seem prepared for it at all. Nick Dacos played a really good second half. Both teams did have dominant stretches, but Collingwood were able to cash in on him more. You know, the Dogs had the first three goals of the game, but only led 19-10 to 10 after a quarter. They went into half up by just five. It felt like the game really turned as Collingwood finished the second quarter strong. They got a goal with 17 seconds left in the half from Jamie Elliott, and then really chuck it to him in the third. That's where the game kind of broke open. And I think the best player on the ground of this game was Isaac Wainer. You know, I, I said this about, like, I know Nick Dacos was excellent, and I want to give him a lot of credit because at times we haven't done that because everyone else does. It feels like we don't need to, but his ability to play physical contests in this game was better than I've ever seen out of him. We often think of him as that defensive 50 player. He's taken... Far fewer kick-ins lately, and in this game, where he kicked two goals from 29, 15 contested possessions, and 11 clearances, he was in much more of an on-ball role. It was really him and Jordan Degoe there. I know that Tom Mitchell might not be at 100%, and Taylor Adams was still in there, but it's the most contested game I've seen Nick Dacos play, and he was still brilliant. Just another piece you could throw into already probably the deepest midfield of the competition. That said... Isaac Quainer, holy shit. I don't know if he got the record for intercept marks for a player under six feet, but he may very well have. 27 disposals, 13 marks, 10 intercepts, 8 intercept marks. Here's my thing that I pointed out a couple weeks ago. If you can work around Darcy Moore and kind of keep things away from him, you still have to deal with Isaac Quainer, and I haven't seen a team that's been able to shut off both of those. You know, Melbourne put on a clinic with how to beat Collingwood, you know, with that slow, methodical style and kind of bringing the whole team with the ball. Keeping numbers off of contest 
rather than sending everybody in, having your best contested winners there, and use numbers on the wing. But in terms of how to beat Collingwood defensively, with Coiner on the smaller side, able to get out in space a decent amount from his one-on-one matchups, plus Darcy Moore and Nathan Murphy and sometimes Billy Frampton on the taller side, you weren't able to beat all of them in a game. And on Friday, it was Coiner with the best performance to the tune of 118 points for me and the Bugga Jumping Fantasy team. If he is somehow still available in your draft league, might want to take him has averaged 92 over his last five games. That's what the kids would call good. Here's something that really surprised me in this game. What has Collingwood's weakness been the last few weeks? They've struggled to contain opposing talls, and yet they did in this game. Tim English racked up some decent numbers but didn't control the game. Aaron Naughton was very quiet, was able to kick a couple, but not a super involved game out of those outside of those goal opportunities. I literally did not notice Rory Lobb once until the third quarter. I know you said you noticed him because he had a halftime interview, but I was watching from a few minutes behind, so I skipped that. In, ter- in terms of the talls who are active over the full length of the oval for the dogs, it's Jamar Eugle Hagen. Kicked two, three from 16 disposals and 10 marks. His good hands are so valuable to the Bulldogs, often coming from defense. You can see him on the wing in the defensive and forward halves both. It reminds you a bit of how Harry Mackay has been used at times by Carlton when his goal kicking has been shakier. It's not just that his hands are good. It's that he created a bunch of great leads, and maybe this ends up being a much closer game if he kicks better. He's the most active leading forward for the Dogs as well, and there are a lot of clubs and a lot of individual forwards who can learn a thing or two from him. But I'm, despite his kicking performance, I thought this game was a really good reflection of how he's developed as a player. I don't think it would have been enough even if he had played really well. Uh, Taylor DeRay struggled. Frankly, a lot of the Dogs defenders struggled. Their midfield got outclassed at times, which is weird. It Against Collingwood, it's not very surprising, especially with how well that Nick Dacos and Dugowie pairing worked. But the lack of the Bulldogs' defensive depth was highlighted yet again. DeRay was regularly beaten. Even having Ed Richards in didn't do a whole lot because there were so many others that were struggling. I didn't think having both James O'Donnell and Caleb Poulter in there was the right move. O'Donnell ended up being subbed out. But yeah, a fullback line of Taylor DeRay, Ryan Tika, Masala Gardner, and Riley West will not win you many games. It was cool to see Poulter play against the Pies and kick his first goal late. In my opinion about Caleb Poulter, as I've said, I don't think he's a great defender, which means he doesn't quite necessarily fit what the dogs need. But I think he's great at finding teammates moving forward and could be a huge assist man if he's put in the right situation. He is not why they lost this game. You know who else isn't why the Dodgers lost this game? It was Cody Waitman who kicked 4-2 and again has proved he doesn't need to flop. He's just really good. I'm glad that he's having more consistent games as of late showing that he's just a talented player on his own and he's only been over 50 games into his career I believe. 2020 debut had that elbow injury last year. The Dogs now sit at 7. They are Four points clear of ninth place Adelaide and 10th place GWS. When Mason Cox predicted his eight, which already doesn't sound very good considering he had Gold Coast in it. Look, he said he said 13 teams on it. No, but when they had him predict, when Braden had him predicting, it was just eight teams. He left out the dogs who think their schedule is going to be forgiving enough that they should be able to get in. Really, is the question of what will be good enough to get them into finals, the Bulldogs defense or the Crows away from Adelaide. 
they've got a really interesting schedule the rest of the way, other than that, other than, I guess, the Eagles. And I mean, the Hawthorne game down in Tasmania is never a given for them. Yeah, they've struggled in Launceston before. That had to sweat it out for a bit last year in the wind in the final round. Essendon Friday round 19. That is a that you that is a very juicy Friday that could take somebody out of the race for like fifth or sixth. Big difference between six and seven if you end up matching up against, say, the Crows. But they've also got the Giants out in Ballarat, Richmond. They end at Cardinia Park. But yeah, obviously, we'll be talking about both these teams a lot the rest of the way. There was another four-goal performance in this game, by the way, for Collingwood. Jamie Elliott, nine goals in the past two weeks. As scary as Collingwood already are, if Elliott can remain this accurate and kick some clutch goals like he did last year, I'd be even more scared. Nick Dacos, who won the Bob Rose Charlie Sutton medal, two goals, 29 disposals, 15 contested possessions, 11 clearances. John Noble, 28 disposals, 9 marks. Jack Crisp, 26 disposals, 507 meters. Josh Dacos, a goal that wasn't his team's first, 24 disposals and 11 marks. Yeah, the Dogs actually scored the first goal in this game. It was the first time that Collingwood hadn't kicked the first goal in nine weeks. They got a practice for the grand final. Although, I mean, Trenton was definitely broken this past year. Yeah, I mean, Collingwood had a pretty bad case of it. I think they kicked the first five goals in 2018. Sorry, not sorry. Tom Mitchell, 24 disposals. Jordan Degoe, 1-1 one, one off 23 disposals. Jeremy Howe, 18 disposals, 10 marks. As tough as it is already for them to fit in, everybody also got Dan McStay coming back into the mix. It's going to make it very awkward to try to fit him in alongside guys like Frampton and Cox. Mason missed a couple shots on goal this game. I think he might get dropped when McStay comes back in. Maybe he can be the sub? Ah, it's a very awkward to have a tall sub. I Maybe if you're planning on managing the stay, but otherwise, I think he might just be straight out. I don't know. I don't think he's done anything to merit being taken out. Collingwood were plus 31 in marks, plus 14 in tackles. It's just the pressure game they bring. And uh, thank you, Craig McRae, for keeping Bo McCreary in the lineup. Dogs were led in disposals by Caleb Daniel, who kicked a behind from 32. Marcus Bonapelli with a behind from 29. 15 contested possessions. 10 score involvements and 8 tackles. Tom Libertori, 28 disposals, also 15 contested possessions, and 11 clearances. Loved seeing the battles for clearances throughout this game between him and Nick Dacos, and they individually came away even from it. Adam Trelor with 26 disposals, Bailey Dale with 25, Jack McCray with 25 as well, and 8 marks. One of the most understated, and perhaps because of that underrated, perennial All-Australians, Jack McCray. Like, you never hear anything bad about his game unless he, for some reason, is sent to full forward which isn't his fault. Oh yeah, I forgot to mention that uh, Tika Masala got hurt. So as if they had, as if they didn't have enough problems in this game, he didn't get taken out, but he was hobbled by a left ankle injury. Looked like he tweaked it in a defensive 50 contest in the second quarter. So something to watch for the coming weeks. In a lot of ways, this just seemed like a typical Bulldogs game to me. They showed that they have the talent to play with the best, but also showed that they don't, beat them because they couldn't take advantage when they were clearly the better team. I would say Collingwood probably had a bit more time as the decisively better team, but not by enough that they should have been able to get out to nearly 40-point lead. Saturday footy began with a game that I expected to end up a lot worse. Brisbane Lions 16-20-116, defeating the West Coast Eagles 5-5-35. Congratulations to Jack Dunstan for being yet another player to outscore the entire West Coast Eagles. 
He did so by three points, kicking 6-2 from 20 disposals, 15 score involvements, and eight marks. This was a great game for him to return, knew that he'd be getting a lot of opportunities against an undermanned defense, and the Lions largely did what they needed to do, although kicking 6-12 in the second half certainly didn't boost their percent as much as it, as they should have gotten. All right, Ethan, how little did you watch? Basically none, but here's my hot Eagles take. Despite getting more than tripled, they had enough individual positives that you can actually come out of this game with something between Jaden Hunt's good showing and Brady Hoff just shutting Charlie Cameron down. I never thought he would be able to put on a, def a defensive performance like this, just playing one-on-one -on -one against one of the premier small forwards in the competition. At just 20 years old, Brady Hoff is doing this. And yeah, he held Charlie Cameron scoreless. Had 22 disposals at 14 marks for himself. His best pure defensive game yet, obviously. I mean, I'd been complimenting him so much for his halfback flank and wing rolls, but I knew that there had been more to him than just that. I just didn't think he'd already have a breakout defensive 50 game like this. And I am thrilled that someone who I would love, even if he weren't my sleeper pick, is getting the praise he deserves despite being on the West Coast Eagles. Seriously, my biggest takeaways from this game were Hoff as well as Oscar Allen keeping his goal streak alive. I really thought it was going to end with Jack Payton playing on him, but he did get one. And then the successful returns for injury for Jeremy McGovern and Tom Cole, who came in as the sub when McGovern was managed. But like probably about the best possible 81 point loss, right? I don't think you guys came out of this with like any terrible injuries. No, no new injuries. As I said, the substitution was a management of Jeremy McGovern coming back in for the first time since the Western Derby, and they got two premiership defenders back and healthy through their return games. You knew you weren't going to keep this game close. You, I expected 200. Yeah. And I mean, they were, they very clearly could have gotten there having kicked 16-20, but this allowed for a very weird stat to happen. The Lions won consecutive gains by 81 points, and that's the second biggest consecutive margin of victory in league history. Back in 1987, the Blues won consecutive matches by 87 points. Well, uh, the Blues did win the flag that year, so maybe that's a good sign for Brisbane. Take what you can get. Lions had the first seven goals and 44 points of this game after Jack Gunston bent home his second goal in a minute. In the 26th minute of time on, X score called the game. Let's see, yeah, I was just checking into my hotel and I had seen the score. I was like, yeah, it's it's a good time to uh, sleep so that I'm up for the later games. And you worked. You did what you needed to do. I was mostly looking for positive signs from the Eagles. And I mentioned, yes, Campbell, Chesser, and Elijah Hewitt did continue well from the previous week, playing on ball, pressuring well. Hewitt was at center bounces and was going to Lockie Neal at some stoppages. He's largely played forward in his debut year, but it was it's good for him to get some of that midfield experiences, even though Neal did control this game. One point from 32 disposals, 15 score involvements, eight clearances, and 472 meters gained. You knew that he'd be the center of things, especially with Josh Dunkley out being rested. No harm, no foul there. And especially no harm done to Lockie's Brownlow hopes. I think it's either Lockie Neal or Nick Dacos. I mean, Zach Butter still has a chance. And so does Tim Taranto, but I think it's going to be one of Lockie or Nick. Jared Lyons, 28-9 disposals. Will Ashcroft, I think there are more Rising Star candidates than there are Brownlow candidates right now. 
Uh, Ashcroft, 28 disposals, 7 clearances, 7 tackles. Zach Bailey, a goal and 21 disposals. Cam Rayner, 1-1 and 21 disposals. Hugh McCluggage, 2 goals to go with 20 disposals and 8 marks. He hit 20 again. Automatic win. Uh, Harris Andrews, who got the 10 coaches votes out of this game, I believe. 19 disposals, 13 marks, 12 intercepts. Lions dominated just about every team stat. 62-29 to 29 on inside 50s. 58.1% efficiency inside 52. West Coast's 34.5. They won clearances 39 to 25. They won contested possessions by 26. Eagles committed 13 more turnovers. West Coast might end up with like an all-time historically bad margin for marks inside 50, which is kind of crazy when you have Tom Barris and Oscar Allen, which just reflects really poorly on everybody else. Uh, marks inside 50 for this game, 23 to 6, and tackles inside 50, 12 to 3. I think it's mostly just a question of how many of them have been on the oval at one time and in terms of defense with how much Ferris has had to shoulder the load given McGovern and Hearn's injuries. But yeah, it could be a historic margin. We'll definitely ask Swamp about that at the end of the home and away campaign. Liam Duggan led the Eagles with 33 disposals and 9 marks. Jaden Hunt a goal from 27 and 15 marks. Wow, 15 marks. Tim Kelly kicked 1-1 from 26 disposals. Alex Withered in 22 and 9 marks in defense, but just he had to be active. He and Hunt and Hoff and everybody had to be active because of how much the Lions controlled this game and how much they were able to play in the Ford 50 once again. I don't think that's going to be the case this coming week going to the G on Friday night against Melbourne, but that's just me. Yeah, the weeknight games for pretty much the entire rest of the season, you know, this one last Thursday and then the upcoming Friday games, really satisfying I think a lot of times we complain about time slots and overlaps and stuff, but I think we've got a lot of the right Friday night games. All right, another game that I didn't really see any of because needed to sleep. Going to go back and watch in the coming days. I've got a whole set of various AFL programming, including a few episodes of Bounce that I need to catch up on, and this is in that list. GWS 12-13-85, defeating Hawthorne 10-12-72. I never really thought this was a game. Hawthorne were in line to win, even though they only trailed by two at halftime. This game seemed fun, though. Oh, it was, and you saw what makes each team so strong, and the contests in the center were consistently good. The Giants were able to create more from their own from their own hits, because Hawthorne had just one ruck, and Ned Reeves was not able to completely shoulder the load, obviously, against Kieran Briggs, which did allow for backup ruckman Sam Frost. Was he more useful in that role than in others? I mean, it's harder to play Frostball as a ruck, so I guess? I, I feel like it could actually be really fun. Like, I think of the angles that guys like Sam Draper and Nick Nui take, and I think of this as, like, the most unhinged version of that, where, like, he's just trying shit for no reason. I feel like the peak version of this would have to involve him, like, getting on all fours and crawling between the opposing ruckman's legs or some shit. Something crazy like that. Frost, like, Frost with just five hitouts. Uh, I feel like this could be a fun chaos thing that doesn't actively hurt the team like most Frostball has this year. Briggs with 28 hitouts and six clearances. I love the work that he's able to do below his knees despite his size. He managed to get one crazy assist on the outside of the boot to Jake Riccardi for the second goal of the game. And that was the biggest, like, 
I'm not even mad. That's amazing moment. That that's certainly how I would feel as a Hawks fan in that moment. There, Hawthorne were putting on a lot of forward pressure, and they got a decent amount of center bounces. But the Giants were able to keep up the pace for longer. Finn Callahan was helping Greater Western Sydney outnumber and win ground balls in defense, which is very unsurprising because that's what we've seen him do at his best all year. You think back to the role he played, for example, in their Sydney Derby 25 win. You know, you heard, you hear all the talk around this young lot for the Giants, especially with them having had the top pick this past year in Aaron Cadman, but Finn Callahan already looks like a very complete player, and I hope he gets as much respect and discussion around the league as we give him here. He's only 20, should be trending on Twitter, like during it, or right after any good GWS performance, that should be trending, like in all cap. Like, like how it is for NBA players sometimes? Yeah, stuff like that. Or, or what? what is it going to be for LeBron this year, like year 21? Whatever the thing is with that. Yeah. So, I don't know, there was just something about this game that made me think the Giants were going to pull out the necessary goals when they did, and it was Jesse Hogan with four goals that ended up getting a couple clutch ones, including putting it away in the final minutes with his fourth and final goal. Hogan kicking 4-1 from 15 disposals in 10 contested possessions, and a three-goal game from Stephen Canelio as well. And Jake Riccardi kicking 3-3. It's amazing, since that game against Geelong, he's gone from, damn, we're really giving up goals to this guy, to, yeah, this guy's just one of their many good forwards. And keeping Aaron Tatman out of the lineup. When, at the start of the season, we had called for his omission, we ended up getting it for these teams' first matchup this year in the... Gather round. And Riccardi has stated his case in the past month and a half to stay in there. Interesting that the Giants were able to win this game without huge contributions from either Toby or Tom Green. Not as necessary and not a huge game from Josh Kelly either, largely limited by a tag. Was that a Connor Nash tag or who was on him? No, Nash was up against Tom Green, so that can explain that. It was Finn McGinnis with one of his best tagging performances of the year. Ah, okay, that makes sense. McGinnis hasn't had as much time at AFL level this year, but I think he's going to be one of their most important pieces throughout the 2020s. Between him and Nash, being able to have two taggers like that, one that's a bit bigger like Connor Nash is, you could pair those really well, and with how dominant the Hawks can be off bounces and, and stoppages, just in their clearance game in general, I think having those two taggers in there, if you keep them around as well as Jai Nukem and Will Day, you've got a lot solved in the midfield. Day's accuracy toward goal leaves a lot to be desired, though. Somehow missed a shot right by the goal square with under 11 minutes left to keep it out at 15 points, 73 to 58. I think that was the last thing that made me say, all right, Giants, Sharpie. I forget which Hawthorne page it was on Twitter. It wasn't Hawk Talk, but someone say, like, on one hand, yeah, they played well, but this also really felt like a game that they pissed away. Yeah, and it's, like, okay to be mad. No, it, it is, considering Jake Riccardi put it out to 20 points, but then Fergus Green and Connor McDonald managed to work it back to eight points with seven minutes remaining. I think they just damaged themselves too much with some of their misses earlier and some misconnections going into the forward 50 with, no surprise, Sam Taylor commanding that area. Taylor with 19 disposals, 13 contested possessions, 13 intercepts, and eight marks. Marks in this game were plus 49 to Greater Western Sydney. I guess not surprising with Hawthorne being a more handball-heavy team that the Giants wanted pretty handily, but still plus 49 seems to stand out here. 
and 17 to 5 inside 50. GWS just controlled the air when it mattered. Here's a question I don't understand. Why the hell was Nick Haynes the sub? Was he being manned? I'm not really sure. It was really strange to me that Haynes was the sub. I thought it was going to be Ryan Agwin again. Having a tall defender as a sub is pretty weird to me. Just tall subs in general seem weird. Also, just that Haynes had been playing really well, too. Like, I didn't think there was anything to merit him being put into that role. Yeah? No. I, I guess it kind of worked out, though, because it ended up being Lockie Keith who got subbed off with a hamstring injury. If Maybe if they were concerned with that before the game, there could have been reasoning behind that. But I, I never seen, I haven't seen an answer. Unless it was a managing his workload thing, this does not make sense to me at all. So the Giants are at 500, 8-8 eight eight in 10th. Not a great percentage at all, 98.4, attributed to some of their closer wins as well as some beatdowns they suffered earlier on in the season. So obviously still a lot of work cut out for them. And they got a tough test this coming week going to Adelaide. A chance for the Crows to redeem themselves considering the lead they pissed away at the show round in the opening round. Another good control game for Harry Hillberg, mostly on the defensive side. 22 disposals at 570 meters. I had mentioned Finn Callahan's good work. 10 score involvements from 19 disposals. Very efficient at getting scores from defense. That's really impressive. Giants lost clearances by 15 and by 11 in the center, but they kept on the pressure and the turnovers they created, especially the intercept marks, helped swing the game in their favor throughout. On the Hawthorne side, Jai Newcomb, 28 disposals, 16 contested possessions, 9 clearances, 497 meters gained. Very typical, solid game from him. Carl Amon, 27 disposals, 654 meters. Connor Nash, a behind in 27 disposals. Will Day, two behinds, 26 disposals. Blake Hardwick, who's had to step up in James Sicily's absence, 25 disposals, 9 intercepts, 528 meters gained. James Warple, one one off 24 disposals, 634 meters gained. Connor McDonald, one one off 23 disposals, he gained 583 meters. And Dylan Moore, despite logging just 13 disposals, had a goal and eight tackles. I'm liking the work that he's doing as interim captain. I think he's the right kind of player for that role. I'd say this year has largely been a disappointment for him production-wise, but seems like these last couple weeks have actually gone pretty well. Oh, we did have this round's Rising Star nominee come from this game. It's a real body of work Rising Star nomination for Seamus Mitchell, who debuted in that Gather round. game round five against the Giants. I forget how many tickets he said he, he'd gotten for the game, but it was some obscene amount, especially considering it was at Norwood. I see these two matchups that, you know, at the start of the year you looked at and wouldn't really regard much at all, not just because they were close games, but because of the quality of play and all just ended up being... Way better than any of us could have anticipated, right? Yeah. By the way, it was 52. 52 tickets. St. Kilda, 8-10-58, defeated by Melbourne, 12-7-79. I thought this was going to be the most boring game, and I was watching Port versus Gold Coast while you had this one. It looked like the first quarter was actually super fun, and then injuries really did the same sturdy, which also happened to them when they played Brisbane last year, and I feel like it's just like a very Saints thing to have happen. And it's going to happen like once a year at this point. If there's any team that's going to regularly happen too. Seems like something that would happen to them. Yeah, Saints kept pace really well throughout the first quarter. But wayward kicking meant they trailed by seven. And that was something that hurt them throughout this game. Weren't ever really able to shake off in that first quarter. 
You know what else they weren't able to shake off? Max King at having his season ended in the first 20 seconds. Um, that's not how you were supposed to present that information. Try again. Oh, sorry. <clears throat> Gotta get closer to the mic here. Max King's season was ended by a shoulder injury within the first 20 seconds. All jokes aside, this sucks, but he is our ASMR guy, especially when it comes to his health and his shoulder in particular. So I think that's going to keep going moving forward. It's the left shoulder. It's the one he had hurt in the summer. And the injuries just kept piling up from there. Not long after, Seb Ross pulled his hamstring, knew it immediately. So that put the Saints down a rotation. Then a few minutes after that, Stephen May took a hanger over Zane Cordy. Cordy had returned for the first time since he was subbed off in round seven. He had actually been subbed off in four or five games, rounds three through seven. But he got concussed in that contest with Stephen May, got the knee to the back of the head as May went up for it. So they were down two rotations, and it was that way the rest of the game. And even with how well they were able to keep pace, you knew that the fatigue would get to him. And it did definitely in the fourth quarter. Their pressure was good. They managed to keep up some good pressure, but my biggest issue for them was how they attacked going into the 450. It's a very Melbourne sort of complaint I have with them. They didn't change up the way they were going into the 450. They kept kicking longer and trying to get their taller options between like 30 and 49 meters. And that just made it easy pickings for Stephen May, Jake Lever, etc. Particularly May, though who had 29 disposals, 13 intercepts, and 12 marks, eight of which were intercept marks. Seems like May and Christian Salem have both been playing pretty well lately, and that's a scary thing, especially with finals looming. Again, May has had to do less of that carrying role now that Salem's been back. Salem with 24 disposals and eight marks. Lever, by the way, with 19 and nine marks. So they've got a pretty healthy defensive unit, even with Joel Smith not playing this game. He has a kidney injury, but... That didn't seem to hurt him, but May leading the way in this game meant that the Demons won both with and from their defense. So many scoring passages for them coming from their rebound plays and cutting off St. Kilda's activity as soon as it got inside 50. That's what made this game so frustrating for me looking at it from a Saints perspective. It was largely there for the taking even despite losing three players in the first quarter, and I wanted to see more involvement from Jack Higgins and Dan Butler on the offensive side. I thought their their running would have provided a good solution to their problems with their kicking inside 50, but nothing really changed in time, if at all. I mean, that kind of seems like a Ross Lyon thing, you know, some stubbornness. Like, I get it. Some stubbornness, just some slower movement in general, but you saw how well they were able to do things earlier this year and how well they, they were able to quickly transition from the defensive 50 to the forward 50. And I'm surprised that slipped away, even with Ross Lyon being in charge. Hopefully that's a lesson for him. I don't know if he's quite the lesson learning type. I think he's a guy who really likes to just do things his way, which I think is largely fine. I think it's part of what makes him fun. But I don't know if that's the most optimal thing for them as a team. Melbourne didn't blow away this game in terms of scoring. Feels weird that 79 points is the most that Melbourne have kicked in just about two months since they kicked 103 against Hawthorne. I mean, I think a fair amount has to do with the style they play in addition to some of their struggles up front. But one seeming breakthrough in this game was Christian Petraka kicking four goals straight from 20 disposals and 10 contested possessions. 
he has been very inconsistent in front of goal these past couple years. But if he can use this game to put those kicking struggles behind him, they'll be even scarier. And, and he could be afforded some more forward opportunities when Clayton Oliver gets back, whenever that happens. Obviously, he's valuable at the contest, but you can manage his time there along with Oliver, Jack Videy, Angus Brayshaw. So if Petrock is able to contribute there, and even while you're still figuring out the tall mix, you got some good things going there, going into finals. And yes, they did change up the forward look again at this game. Jacob Van Royen still left out, but Jake Belcham coming into the 22 to help replace Bailey Fritsch and held his own. It's nice to have so many pieces that you can put in there. I'm, I'm still strongly a believer, though, that Van Royen is part of their best 22. Yeah, I think the Demons list management kind of outsmarting themselves here. Like, this is one that needs to be underthought. Angus Brayshaw with one of his better games as of late, 25 disposals, 7 tackles. Jack Viney, 25 disposals, kind of pedestrian considering how good he's been. I mean, he had a career high last week with 41. Ed Langdon to go off, 21 disposals. Uh, Demons won hitouts 39 to 18, and yet Rowan Marshall was by far the top fantasy producer in this game. Marshall continuing to find ways to produce. I'd mentioned this before. That was a real worry that I'd had about the Saints going into this season with him not having great support. Patty Ryder retiring. Jack, 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 Jack Hayes being hurt. He got through his game with Sandringham this past week. So great signs there. But Marshall has, has kept his impact throughout the rest of the ground. 30 disposals, 18 contested possessions, 15 hitouts, 10 marks, 8 clearances, and 7 tackles. We know that he's a very complete player, but that he's able to still showcase his complete skill set despite being the first-rate Ruckman is a great sign, and something that I didn't necessarily expect to be so complimentary of. Jackson Clare and Naziah Wagadine-Millera were leading disposal getters for the Saints with 33 each. Wagadine-Millera really strong as a defensive mark and carrier, and Sinclair also getting 620 meters for himself. In his 150th game, Jack Steele kicked a goal from 31 disposals, had 12 tackles, and gained 470 meters. It was also Christian Salem's 150th game as well, so both the milestone players having pretty good impact. Brad Crouch behind from 27 disposals and 14 contested possessions. Jade Gresham kicking two goals from 24 and seven marks. He and Mason Wood and their smaller forwards in general will need to shoulder more of the load offensively with King and Cordy being injured, obviously, and with Jack Hayes probably still requiring a bit more time before his AFL return. Wood kicked 1-2 from 21 disposals. Defensively, Callum Wilkie with 23 disposals and 10 marks, and Jimmy Webster 20 and 8 marks. He's been one of the better pieces in that supporting cast there for the Saints as of late. It makes sense that Webster got more of the action this week considering Josh Battle was concussed. He could be out of that protocol in time for their game on the Gold Coast this coming Saturday, and yeah, that's a must-win. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. You know the drill unless this is your first time listening. And if it is your first time listening, welcome. Uh, we're on Twitter at Americans Footy. I'm on Twitter at Castle Media. I'm on Twitter at BenjaminHK01. Brian Harambe, the footy cat, is very grateful that his dad is home. 
He's on Instagram at cat named Ryan. Did you post his reaction to you coming home yet? No, that'll be coming in the next couple days. Good. It, it, it was a good one. One of his better ones. So we talked about one of the late Saturday games already. While I was watching St. Kilda and Melbourne, Ethan, you were taken in Port Adelaide and Gold Coast. Yes, I was. Port Adelaide 16-10-106, defeating Gold Coast 11-7-73. You know, the Suns came out, started really hot in this game, and actually did a few things really nicely. Uh, they were counterattacking really well, which they hadn't done all season, which seems kind of odd when you've got such a good midfield. Welcome back to Camiller, by the way. Seems like he wasn't inserted into nearly as many stoppages as you'd expect, though. Now, was it some sort of management for him, you think, on his way back? I mean, he played the full game. I, I don't know, but the Suns went from leading 31-14 to 14 early in the second to looking really good to only being up 6 at half thanks to Alir's fingertip. Um, I think it was a bad Ainsworth kick, but it's the difference between going into half down 6 and down 11. And then Port absolutely wrecked him in the third quarter, 9 goals to 1. In all, it was a 56-7 to quarter, and that's really where the game was decided. And throughout that, the Suns never did anything to really adjust. They never put Tuke into those center bounds. It was just frustrating. It gave me this idea, like, you have the pieces here, and you're just not channeling them. And then then a couple days later, uh, Stuart Dew. Yep, Stuart Dew has been sacked. The uh, vote of confidence took much less time than usual to really, really spell the end for him. Wasn't even a fortnight, I believe. I feel bad. I like Stuart Dew. I think it's been really apparent that guys like playing for him and he's built a really good culture. But, I mean, at some point, you gotta win some games. They had won six out of their past nine, though, and then you lose handily against the top two, who are two games clear of third, and that's the sign? I don't think it's the fact that they lost. I think it's how. I think it's that there were moments in these games that really gave me the impression that this team has a lot of underutilized talent. It's like, again, it shouldn't have taken until game 16 to see a good counterattack, and then for that to vanish so as quickly as it appeared, like, that was what was really aggravating to me. That and the inability to adjust during the third quarter and make things look more like they were there. I don't think too many people were expecting the Suns to win this game or come especially close to winning but that lack of adjustment, they've had issues that have been well-documented with their own defense, you know, other than other than Sam Collins, who I think kind of struggled with Charlie Dixon at times in this game. Yeah, other, other than Collins and Ballard, I mean, you've had the carriers of Will Powell and Lockie Weller in there since their returns from injury, but it's not a complete defensive six, I'd say. Uh, Lockie Weller really struggled, had a bunch of bad turnovers. The biggest issue, though, at least according to the broadcasting, which I largely agreed with, was the Suns forward. Well, really, every Suns forward not named Levi Caswell. Going back and watching this game, I was consistently keeping my eyes on the Caswell versus Alir matchup. I love Alir being able to win a lot in that matchup, despite Caswell being such a big and strong forward. We'd had concerns about Alir being able to stand up to those types of builds. But Caswell seemed to be the only one really moving, putting on leads, and Alir managed to follow him and keep that matchup close. But with Ben King having been subbed out, having been ineffective, it didn't really look like anybody else other than Casbolt was there. Where's Mavi Orchol? Whose decision has it been to leave out their leading goal kicker from last year? And it's not like he had ever been that 
bad in any games to this point. You know, he hadn't been great, but he had been fine. He had not have had a performance where it's like, yeah, we need to sit this guy. And yet for weeks now, that's been the decision. I, I don't get it at all. And meanwhile, you look at past VFL performances, and in his last three games, he's kicked, oh, 12 goals three. Is that the solution to completely save the Suns' season? No, but it seems like a really obvious fix that's obvious to everyone that's not in the room. And it's another of those situations where, you know, the people with decision-making ability need to underthink it. Like, this is really obvious to people that are way less knowledgeable than you and way less qualified than you. And normally, you know, it's like there's a reason they're making the decisions and we're sitting at home talking about them. But there there are some obvious fixes here. And then, and that's one of them. Uh, yeah, Ben King subbed out. It looked like there was a moment in the second quarter where Stuart Dew kind of pulled him aside and told him, hey, we need more out of you. It didn't happen. He got subbed out. I don't know if I've ever heard a broadcast team just tear a position group apart like this. That said, Levi Casbolt, yeah, Casbolt versus Allure was just like great theater. If I'm a team that's, you know, maybe not in a mode where like you have to win this one game, I would keep my best defender away from Casbolt because the odds of getting hurt against him were just too good because he's a big ass motherfucker. I mean, yeah, Casbolt in a marking contest did end up kind of causing Trent McKenzie to get hurt, which is why Allure had to make that switch. That occurred in the later part of the first quarter, McKenzie didn't have any super severe angle damage, but doesn't look like he'll be playing this week. Things I really noticed from Port Adelaide, no surprise, their best play came when Kane Farrell looked really good. If it's not Dan Houston, it's Kane Farrell with the long kicks from the back. Of course, it was Houston last week, so so of course it was Farrell this game. It wasn't just out of the back. That said, when he does kick out of the back, it seems like it's just at this consistency that everyone's really moving well together. And everyone's so in sync and it's and that aspect of it is a little bit like, you know, Collingwood's all out attack when they rebound on you. I also have really liked Willem Drew. Wasn't like any sort of blow you away numbers this week, but I I just really like him. And throughout this game, Port were better at punishing mistakes, whether it was, you know, a bad fumble by Weller or whatever it may have been. On the sun side, the other thing I really noticed and this is really no secret, it's kind of been that way throughout this year. But uh, Jack Lukosius played a really nice first half, and in the second half had multiple bad drops. He had a weak effort to tackle Lear that set up a big end-to-end sequence to get the first goal of the half that tied the game. And it's got to be frustrating because visually, and I don't, I don't know if it's quite what it looks like to the eye, but a lot of times with Lukosius, when he's playing poorly, it's either really dumb mistake or just what looks like a lack of effort. I don't know if it's a lack of effort. All I know is he signed a contract extension because of who was coaching. So that'll be fun to watch now. I think this is a guy who, like, on the right day, can be an All-Australian. But also, when he's bad, he's so bad. that it's like, if you told me that he totally fell off a cliff and was out of the league in just a couple of years... You wouldn't entirely... I, I, I wouldn't... I wouldn't rule it out. Like, I can see a scenario where that happens. Benjamin, you went off and watched a decent amount of this game? Yeah, I did. Especially after the news of Stuart Dew's sacking really wanted to take in what may have been the direct cause in terms of this game and the lack of movement and seemingly effort from the forwards. You thought that maybe Ben King getting subbed out would be some sort of signal to them, but they just fell off so quickly in 
the second half. They were outnumbered, and even when they tried to counterattack, they were still exposed out the back. I still don't know if this is the right time for this move to be made, though. Yeah, kind of at the two-thirds mark of the season. It's just, like, what what is the purpose of doing this now rather than waiting until the end of the year? What's the purpose? Yeah, what's the purpose of seeing if things can, can change? You can still still put up a good fight near the end of the year. I would still go into that home game against the Saints this coming Saturday and think they could do something there. Is this move being done with the impression we need to change something to make finals and then convince Damian Hardwick to coach us? You know, it's well, I feel like if you make finals, whoever's your interim would probably have a really good argument to stay on board. I mean, I would think so. And it's Stephen King, a Geelong Premiership Ruckman from 2007, who's been their top assistant since last year. So make all your horror story puns you want to. It's, ah, uh, I just don't have much of an answer as to like, you know, is this being done to, you know, give someone a test run now? Or is it being done to clear house a little early, but just to get the coaching search started now ahead of maybe some other clubs. I mean, there's a clear, there's a clear prize this off season. If he's interested, you know, I don't know if Hardwick wants to get back into the coaching game right away. You know, when you, when you step aside thing, you know, that you feel burned out. I don't know. I just wouldn't go to a club that has consistently had cap management and player retention problems. Hardwick would know about their player retention issues looking at a couple of his key premiership pieces in Tom Lynch and Dion Prestia. And, I mean, the cap issues are, you know, very topical still. So it's a question of, is a coaching candidate going to be confident in the management above them, the people that hired him? Interesting little subtext from this game. Dylan Williams is now 14-0. He just quietly surpassed Francis Evans by two games, hasn't he? Yeah. I feel like if the two of them were on the field together and poured loss... Like, the world could be in serious danger. That That's when the polls could reverse. The other interesting subplot for this one was, of course, Charlie Dixon playing his 200th game against the team for whom he kicked their first AFL goal. It was kind of a typical Charlie Dixon game. You know, he was getting to, you know, his knee was all strapped up after he was hobbling a bit. Played through it, but could mean to get managed sometime in the next few weeks. Well, they clearly wanted to have a true Ruckman in there because Purple made a season debut. My sleeper pick, Sam Hayes. Obviously, they needed a body against Jared Witts. They were still plus 22 in the hitouts Gold Coast, 49 to 27. Witts having 44 of those himself. But it allowed them to just occupy him a bit more and allow Dixon and 100th gamer Jeremy Finlayson to play their their stronger forward half games. Finlayson, as we, you know, not much else needs to be said about him. He's been such an uplifting story all year. Uh, wasn't the most accurate in this game, kicked 3-4, but was still heavily involved altogether up front. The other thing that reflected the Suns' struggles in this game was that Mark's inside 50 were 19-5 to in favor of Port. And it just seems like with the Suns, you know, most weeks has been they're the better midfield, and they just need to be competent in each 50. Maybe not great, but competent and this game, they, they really weren't. And it's just, like I said, if you want to point to one reason Stuart Dew was fired, I think it's just the underutilization of talent. Like, that counterattack looked really good, and it's something you should be able to do with that midfield. Like, okay, you don't have a ton of great defenders in terms of speed, so how that can hinder things. 
But like off midfield turnovers, like just go. You have the guys. All right, stats from this game. Connor Rosie, two goals in the behind. 28 disposals, 635 meters. Yeah, those goals. Both of them pretty good. Uh, one was just an insane angle. Crazy geometry lesson. Uh, Ollie Wines, 26 disposals, 15 contested possessions. Zach Butters, he's been a little quieter as of late, but still totaled 22 disposals. So did Dan Houston, who also got another goal. Uh, Ryan Burton did a good job getting the ball out of his own end with 18 disposals and 503 meters. Kane Farrell, 17 and 533. Uh, efficiency inside 50, poor to take over 50%. The Suns barely over 39%. I mean, that's, again, a sign of how little the Suns forwards were moving in the forward 50. And when they were, it was pretty easy for the Port bodies to follow them. I mean, other than that, Alir versus Casbolt matchup, Port won probably every single matchup in either 50 throughout the night. So, yeah, my conclusion is Suns management might have looked at this and said, like, man, we have all these pieces and we're just underachieving like crazy. I hope Stuart Dew catches on somewhere. I don't know if he's ever going to be a head coach again, but at least as an assistant. Again, players seem to really like playing for him. He creates a good sense of camaraderie. You know, does a good job with, like, incorporating players' families and stuff. You know, I think back to... Alex Davies' grandpa last year. We look at Hawago Oya's family this year. It's disappointing that they just weren't able to fully get off the ground at any time with him. Like, or at least, you know, they'd, like, they'd get in the air and then come back down very, very quickly. SOS, right? Same old sons. You look at some of those pieces that did show up for Gold Coast. No surprise. Noah Anderson with 29 disposals, 17 contested possessions, and 501 meters. Rory Atkins, 26, 8 marks and 762 meters. Sam Stupid Sexy Flanders with a behind 24 disposals and 13 contested possessions. It's almost like some of these guys are getting a lot of possessions because they end up needing to carry out of the back more, especially Atkins. Matt Rowell with 21, 15 contested possessions and 7 clearances. It's just Matt Rowell stuff. Tuke Miller did have a goal and 20 disposals in his comeback game. And Levi Casbold, 4 goals straight from 7 marks. Without Casbold, this would have been a nigh-unwatchable game from a Gold Coast perspective. Geelong, 1911-125, defeating North Melbourne, 9-9-63. You landed just before this game got underway? Yeah, I had to watch the first quarter of this from my phone. Yeah, you were giving me some running commentary as I was driving you back from San Jose Airport. Took a few minutes for the Cats to get settled in and then really stuck it to them late in the first quarter, and that was really the whole game. Eight goals to two in the first quarter, 53 to 12 at quarter time. Geelong trailed 12-8 and probably should have been up 18-12 at that point. Couple of really bad point-blank misses from Patrick Dangerfield and Ollie Henry, but those became non-issues. Geelong regularly getting behind North Melbourne's entire defense. On a day where Irish players were celebrated between having three in the lineup for the Cats, having them all line up together, Zach Toohey breaking Jim Stein's record, Unfortunately, North Melbourne's Irishman, Aiden Core was not up to par. Also, North made a late change managing George Wardlaw. Yeah, it turns out there was illness involved there. And, okay, is, and he is expected to recover from that to play this coming week, so glad it's not anything lingering for him and that he should be in action against the Hawks this Sunday afternoon. Now, their game against the Hawks this week, this is the Tasmanian timeshare tussle? Correct. They already played out in Launceston this year. This one's at Marvel, a North Home game. Got it. Uh, 
North's defense really took a major hit when Griffin Logue, who had actually started the game with a couple of nice intercept marks, hurt his knee. Turns out it was a torn ACL, so he's going to be down for probably at least 10 months. I mean, that could that takes him out for most of next season as well, and the North backline issues get even more desperate with his injury, Ben McKay likely departing, and also Ben McKay just isn't a great player, sorry to say. I wonder if he's just demoralized being where he is. He's won seven games in his entire career. Luke McDonald giving away goals again. He's just been a turnover machine. He has been bad. I I know it's harsh, but take the captaincy away from him. Give it to Simkin Solo. I don't know if he needs to do something that drastic when you're trying to build up a culture. Maybe that is the right move to, you know, create a sense of like, hey, accountability really matters here, but he's been bad. And I guess he'll be solo captain next week because Jai Simkin was concussed for the second time this year. And they're going to take his recovery somewhat slowly, obviously. Lead got into the 72-point range a few times. North did play a decent fourth quarter to get back in it, but it also seemed like the Cavs were just more focused on playing out the game and making sure that nobody got hurt because, among other things, you know, Mark Blitzovs got subbed out. That was just to, you know, just a tactical thing, just manage him, make sure he stays healthy. Not a guy you can afford to lose. He did typical Mark Blitzov things. 18 disposals, 11 contested possessions, and an octopus without even finishing the third quarter. He was awesome. Towards the end of the game, though, a few things that should be noted for North, because I think it's important that we try to shed some light on positives on teams at the bottom of the ladder, because it doesn't often happen. And a lot of fans, understandably, aren't watching much of those games, you know, whether it's North, Hawthorne, West Coast. So try to really shed some light there. And takeaways I had from this game, well, no surprise, Eddie Ford's really good. He kicked a pretty nice longer goal. Also, Flynn Perez blasted one for his first goal and didn't get the celebration he deserved because it was a really nice kick. That was Yes, they were getting their asses kicked, but normally first goals get pretty good reactions. And there was a good reaction for Cooper Harvey's first goal. Yeah, um, man, maybe they just didn't realize it was Flynn's first. I don't know. But I was the one to really alert you to Eddie Ford and took a couple of nice intercept marks in the defensive 50 as well. We're seeing his full field capabilities already. To have a young guy that can play that well in both 50s is awesome. And especially, especially when he's not super big either. He's 189 centimeters, so that's around, uh, so that's about 6'2", and 81 kilos, so 179 pounds. As for Cooper Harvey, he took five contested marks. He looks very mature already, ready to be out there. Looks like he belongs. The five contested marks, according to Sir Swamp Thing, are the second most ever on debut. It's interesting. There are a bunch of guys with four. Nobody had ever taken five. James Podsey Adley had taken six. He still holds the number one spot there. So I guess fitting that it happened against the Cats? I I, I guess so. Um, Geelong's defense only allowing 37 points through three quarters. Yes, North had a couple of misses during the middle quarters that you would expect them to convert, but at the same time, I really liked this defense. So, Jed Buse and Jake Kolejashny were both out with relatively minor injuries this week, and I kind of loved the way the defense worked, where you had, like, it won't work against every team, but to have a bunch of talls together in... Tom Stewart, Sam DeConing, Asava Radagalea, Zach Guthrie. I thought it worked really well, and when Mark O'Connor was playing further back, I really liked what he did, which is no surprise. I've always liked that. Uh, Jack Bowes playing kind of as a 
player who links the defenders to the midfield did really well. And uh, Brian Myers, maybe the player who got the most attention from the broadcast team in this game. Great lead up to his 100th game next week. 32 disposals. Yes, he did have nine turnovers, but they were almost all like aggressive, you know, trying to set something up in the forward 50 type plays. 11 marks, only two goal assists. The first of them was really funny. I think it was the first one where he basically ran along the boundary next to the goals and then instead of trying to kick at a sharper angle, just gave it to Ollie Henry, who basically had a freebie. I noticed early in the game, especially in the first quarter, Geelong really wanted to attack like the areas right next to the behind posts and kind of along the boundaries there. And I'm not sure if that's something that they're going to keep doing or if it was just a vulnerability they saw against North, but it definitely worked in this case as they face better teams. Be interesting to see if that's something they keep up with or if this was just a a one-off thing where they were just taking what was made available. Let's also talk about the coaches' votes for this game really quick, yeah? Yeah, this was pretty wild stuff. The only coaches' votes on which they agreed were that Tom Atkins was third best. So, nine different players are receiving votes. The only one appearing on both ballots, Atkins, at third best. So, Jack Bowes and Ollie Henry each got one vote. Tyson Stengel and Tom Stewart each got two. Jack Henry and Patrick Dangerfield each got four. And Brian Myers and Mitch Duncan each got five. Going back and watching bits and pieces of this, I noticed Duncan being that that sort of defensive midfielder that we expect from him and being able to get some longer kicks away as well. I noticed him playing up towards the forward 50 more, which is something we haven't seen a ton of out of him, and I think he did it quite well. Able to put that longer kicking to good use. Did he get a goal in this one? I believe he got one. Uh, Yeah, he kicked 1-1 off 30 disposals and 8 marks. It's less usual to see him playing that far up, I guess, but could afford that in this game. I think it was just part of the times they were able to really flood the forward half. And I get, and he could kind of be that the containing force there, able to get some of those intercepts, keep the ball with it within the forward half and set up another opportunity on a rebound. Patrick Dangerfield, nine clearances, eight tackles to go with the behind, 26 disposals, 15 contested possessions. Max Holmes a behind, 26 disposals, gained 499 meters, just a super active game for him. Uh, Tom Stewart, who frankly... I thought this was one of his lesser games. He still had nine intercepts, nine marks, and 26 disposals. Like, a bad game for Tom Stewart is still a good game for most other teams' top defender. Tom Atkins, 14 tackles, 14 contested possessions on his 25 disposals. He also had seven clearances. The last couple weeks have been that sort of physical brand that you want to see out of Atkins. It really started with the fourth quarter on Thursday night against Melbourne a few weeks back. Jack Bowes. 1-1 off 25 disposals and 10 marks. I thought he looked really solid in this game. Like, nothing outrageous, just a very comfortable showing. Uh, Tanner Groom, 22 disposals and 7 tackles. Brad Plosh, 3 goals off 16 disposals. Tyson Stengel, 5-2 off 15. Ollie Henry, 4-1, 14 disposals. When those three combine for 12 goals, it's easy to forget that Jeremy Cameron... Didn't play in this game. Was kind of being managed slowly back from his concussion. He should be back this week against the Bombers. All but locked into the lineup already. And a Reese Stanley 13 disposals and 35 hitouts. Cats had their way with North all over the ground. And that included in Ruck contest. Tristan Jerry came in for Todd Goldstein. It was Jerry's first game back since a severe syndesmosis injury in the opening round. It did not work. Whether it was him or throwing Callum Coleman-Jones in there on occasion... 
you still need Goldie for now. Like, it's clear watching Todd Goldstein that age is wearing on him. He's not the great player he used to be, and I regret not getting to watch him at his best because the version of him we see now is still pretty decent, but they don't have an immediate post-Goldstein solution. Yeah, I don't know. Are they... I think they're. I think they're trying to build it, build it up to be Jerry Coleman Jones. Some contributions from Charlie Combin. I mean, he. I think he seems to want to be a one club guy, which makes me think that this could be the end of the line for him. Yeah, because this is the sort of dude where if you were a contending club, you could look at Goldstein and say, and ask him like, "Hey, you want to come to us and maybe play in I don't know half our games, or like offer him a contract that that transitions into coaching." You know who could really use him right now, I think? The Sydney Swans. Yeah, because Tom Hickey got totally outdone by Tobin and Curvis. Pete Bladams ain't that guy yet. Yeah. I want to go back and revisit that for like five seconds, even though it's totally out of order with everything else when we talked about that game. But one of the common issues for the Swans this year has been that Hickey hasn't been it, and they haven't had any sort of alternative or way to compensate, like how... Port Adelaide have ways to compensate when Lysette's out, or as we'll talk about in a bit, Carlton got absolutely mauled on hitouts and made sure it was a non-issue. Yeah, I mean, you need, I mean, that's where Chad Warner being out for the Swans definitely didn't help things. James Robottom was limited at the source, and, and I mean, Hayden McLean did as much as he could, but they need a ruck solution for now, or else they just need to be a clearance machine. And nor- anyway, anyway, tying it back into this game, like, I like Reese Stanley, but at best, he's probably about an average Ruckman compared to some of the other competition out there. Like, I don't think anyone is going to argue that there are far better options out there, such as Tim English, Sean Darcy. But, like, to get your butt kicked by a consistent but not blow-you-away player like Stanley really shows that North have a long way to go there. And I know they like Jerry, but it makes you wonder, like, is this worth pursuing at this time you know maybe maybe they're trying to accelerate that because they're looking at like what could our 2025 team look like what could our 2026 team look like but I think Goldstein is the sort of older guy the sort of mentor that you don't mind keeping in there even if he's not going to be on your next competitive teams oh one other North Melbourne observation for this game their class jumper it was basically like all blue with the white silhouette of the kangaroo in front. Looked really good. Yeah, I, I think it was kind of a modified version of a training jumper, but it worked. They actually have a clash to go with Geelong's hoops. Now learn from that, Collingwood. Geelong were plus 31 on inside 50s, plus 14 on clearances. And from the center that they really hurt him, building off of that ruck dominance, it was 20 to 4 in center clearances and 15 to 3 for Mark's inside 50. At one point in this game, inside 50s were 33-7. to seven. That's like that's like the second quarter of an early season Alabama football game. I think it was in the second quarter that we had that 33-7 to seven tally, so that's, that's appropriate. There you go, roll tide. Stat lines of note for North. Luke Davies, Uniac, kicking two goals from 28 disposals and eight marks. Please don't waste his career, North. Luke McDonald with 25 and 539 meters gained, but he gave up nine turnovers. Cam Zerhara behind for 25 disposals and 551 meters gained. Bailey Scott and Taron Thomas with 24 disposals each. Hugh Greenwood, the most active contested player on the ground with 20 disposals, 16 contested possessions, and an octopus, which of course is 10 tackles. Some of those numbers were inflated by how much he had to do after Simpkin went out, but it was a nice game for him, and we had been asking, like, what's he going to do with 
Davies, Uniac, and Simkin in there, and he looked better this week. Also getting an octopus was Charlie Lazaro. 10 tackles and 15 disposals. He was the late in for George Wardlock and made a reasonable case for himself. Yeah, he was not, he was not like a blatant negative, unlike Luke McDonald, unlike McDonald, Core, Lockie Young. Ben McKay with 16 disposals, 11 intercepts, and 9 marks, but had to carry so much of the load back there, especially when Griffin Logue came out. Jack Zeeble was a decent choice for a sub, but they didn't, I didn't think he played very well. Zeeble's looking like he's toward the end of his time at North. He's now on their women's coaching staff as well. That was announced earlier this week. And again, Ben seems good as gone. Essendon, 17-13, 115, defeating Adelaide, 15-7-97. This game was kind of my background entertainment since, obviously, was focused on Geelong and then was focused on the final game of the round between Frio and Carlton. So, But this was easily the best game on Sunday. It was the most competitive, even if the final score made it sound a lot closer than it was. And now Bombers led by 37 at half, 38 after three, 30 in the final, 30 with two minutes to go. It seems like both teams just kind of said, fuck defense. Uh, 40 to 31 after a quarter, 12 goals in the first quarter, 19 in the first half. Essendon kicking 7-6 in the first quarter really says a lot. Um... So my question, because I wasn't watching this game that closely, I know it was a good bounce back showing from Peter Wright after pretty invisible game a week earlier. Does Adelaide miss Jordan Butts that much? Is it the combination of missing him and Tom Duday, or... I mean, that certainly didn't help. Remember, Butts was out concussed, so it meant more responsibility fell on Nick Murray and Josh Worrell. Peter Wright ended up matching up against Murray. Seemed to be a bit of an easier matchup for him, but it's more that throughout... The game throughout the ground, Essendon were beating Adelaide at what they do so well, and that's contested forward time. It was an all-Australian-type game from Zach Barrett, a goal from 39 disposals and 687 meters gained. Darcy Parrish with 39 as well, 8 clearances and 599 meters. You have the two of them going together like that and putting up those numbers, it's going to be hard to beat Essendon. In the second quarter, I really noticed Essendon only possession and Adelaide not being able to stay in it despite kicking efficiently when they got into the 50 just because they didn't get there nearly enough. They kicked 7-2 for the first half, but they were already down 37 going back into the rooms. It was some of the best tackle pressure that we've seen this whole season out of the entire league. Essendon had numbers everywhere on the ground, and that was really the story here. And when the Crows did get into defense and they couldn't score, it was because the defense held up surprisingly well despite not a lot of height, and there were enough players getting back in support for them. Sam Durham had a couple important contest wins in defense. How worried should I be about the Bombers heading into this weekend's game at Cardinia Park? I know we've matched up really well with them the last few times. I would be pretty scared. Yes, Geelong have that one loss at Cardinia Park already this year, but coming off a performance like this, I mean, it depends on how much Tom and Jessica do, I guess. Because that was the way that they beat him last time. Really, it was just Tom Hawkins kicking eight. It was also the midfield just out-physicaling the Bobbers from start to finish. And that will not happen this time around. They still have to manage Dangerfield's game time. If they don't bring Mitch Nevitt in, I think they're going to have even more of an issue. The Cats, Darcy Parrish is healthy. Could be auditioning for a spot. Come home, you know. I'm just going to be super obnoxious about that. Like, regardless, like, like, um, are Geelong fans just gonna, like, cheer for him every time he has the ball to try to entice him to come home? They're like, 
Awesome. Like, you boo players when they go away, like, when there's a trade target, do you just cheer for them? I like the idea of that. I'm glad Essendon played well in this game because they're likely to make finals at this point. Nine and seven doesn't put, you know, they're only one game clear, but they are in fifth. They also have games remaining against both West Coast and North, so you can probably pencil in two more wins off of that. The other four games are interesting. Obviously, the trip to Geelong. As part of this stretch where they play four straight at Marvel coming up, they'll be hosting the Dogs and Swans and Eagles. Then they've got that North game, and then at GWS and finish with Collingwood. So, what of these seven games we see two likely wins, one likely loss, and four that are kind of up in the air. I think just off of their schedule, they're in a really advantageous position. And if they're going to make finals, I don't want it to just be because they got to play North and West Coast twice. I want it to be that they really earned that shit. And considering the way they played in this game, I think it's fair to say they're on the way to earning it. Right with you. As much as we've been talking about both these clubs this year, I think this game was pretty simple. I don't think there's that much more to say on this. I think the concerns about the Crows' defense, you know, things have been amplified considering who they're missing. Tom Bude ain't coming back the entire rest of the year. That doesn't help. He did his other ACL a few rounds ago. I'd love to see Patrick Parnell in there more just because I like him. I don't know if he'd be the solution to all of their defensive problems, but it's got to be frustrating because... If you said at the start of the year that the Crows would be just outside in the eight and they'd have some defensive problems holding them back, we'd both say, yeah, that makes sense. Just sucks that some of those defensive problems were created by injury because they have been going pretty well overall. Let's look at the games they could actually win coming down the stretch. Those being their home games and a trip to West Coast to close out the season. They got the Giants this coming Saturday night. Chance to put some demons behind them from the opening round. That said, that loss does not look anywhere near as bad as it once did. After going to Melbourne to play the Demons, they have Showdown 54, their home showdown, then the Suns before going to the Gabba and finishing up hosting the Swans and going to the Eagles. So so five winnable games out of those seven, yeah? Including one that's basically a guaranteed win. I'd say pencil it in, yeah. Well, I'd say, I wouldn't say like full-on Sharpie, but like, don't be afraid to make dark marks and press pretty hard with the pencil. Like, I don't think you'll need to erase the Scantron here. Looking at some of these defensive performances from Essendon, Andrew McGrath with a behind for 31 disposals. Dyson Heppel looking really at home in defense all of a sudden. Struggled to get the ball and be effective in the first few games, but the last two months has been consistently getting numbers in the 20s, had 25 and 9 marks. Jaden Laverne with 20 disposals, and... You know, Heppel and Laverty will need to carry a bit more of the load along with Brandon Zerk Thatcher with Jordan Ridley's knee getting injured. We thought it was a lot worse than it, than it was at first with the reaction to it and how he had to be carried off. But he remains an outside chance to play this coming week, which is astonishing. Mason Redmond with a goal from 19 disposals at 511 meters. You know he isn't going to be a stay-at-home defender much. And I love the fact that, you know, considering the stories and the storylines and the potential for him to go home, and he had the first goal in this game. Further up the ground, not dead Ben Hobbs with a goal from 20 disposals and 11 contested possessions. Also, he has company now in the not dead department, considering the uh, graphic that the Gold Coast Suns posted when they thanked Stuart Dew. He's in a better place now. Yeah, not coaching the Gold Coast Suns. Archie Perkins is behind for 24 disposals. 
was a very effective score for me in fantasy helped me win my matchup with a pretty nice comeback, honestly. Had a lot of good Sunday performers. Nick Martin scoring two straight from 28 and nine marks. And Peter Wright taking 3-3 from 19 disposals, 11 contested possessions and eight marks. He won that matchup against Nick Murray throughout. And I'm glad he's back to his better form. I know you thought of him before he got hurt this year as a good Coleman chance. And then you said Mitch Lewis, and then he got hurt. So if you want Coleman medal picks, don't ask Ethan because the guy will get hurt. There needs to be a forward who's just like a super villain that I can pick, and then they get hurt. And like, Tom Papley's kind of a villain, but also, like, you listen to the dude, he's fun. Enough people will stay Taylor Walker's a villain. Yeah, I gotta, I gotta find a way to use my powers for good. Essendon were plus 99 in disposals, plus 82 in handballs, and about 12% better in terms of efficiency inside 50, which is kind of damning for the Crows considering I thought they would be able to handle things better with their 450 matchups. Yeah, how many games the Crows have won as the away team this year? One, two, showdown, and then, all right, one away from Adelaide Oval. And then the three-point game in Launceston where they played very poorly. Yeah, that was Anzac weekend, I believe. Correct. Yeah, Hawthorne always hosts there in Launceston on Anzac weekend. And that required a magnificent Darcy Fogarty goal. Rory Laird still had a pretty Rory Laird game. 31 disposals, 18 contested possessions, 10 clearances, 9 tackles. Jordan Dawson, 28 disposals, 8 marks, 8 tackles, 555 meters. Mitch Hinge, a behind in 27 disposals. Brody Smith, a goal, 21 disposals, 587 meters. The parts of this game I was paying more attention to, Ben Keyes was pretty involved. Two goals off 20 disposals and 11 contested possessions. But you were paying more attention to Frio getting blasted. Yeah, this was not an outcome I saw coming. I mean, I saw a world in which Carlton could have won this game. I did not see them shoving it down Frio's throats worse than ESPN tries to shove the WNBA down Americans' throats. And if Frio were doubled up despite Michael Frederick kicking a goal on the final siren, Dockers, I mean, if you want to look at it one way, they had a nice final scoreline of 6-9-45, but the Blues 14-14-98, four goals to none in the first quarter, a six-goal-to-none third quarter, really put this game out of reach if there was any question to begin with. I watched a full replay of this game knowing the result, and honestly, I probably would have known the result within the first few minutes of the second quarter had I watched live. Here's the thing, at the end of the first quarter, despite Frio trailing 27-3, I saw a path for them to get it back in this game, because they had some chances to leak out the back, and they just couldn't execute them, and what they needed to do was use Carlton's aggression against them, and they never could. Carlton, on the other hand, this is like one of the most enjoyable watches I've had of them in the last few years. And you are very vocal about not being a Carlton fan. Yeah, but I enjoyed the way they played this game. I don't want them to win, but I enjoyed how they played this game. It wasn't just go fast when we have the ball. They put on insane pressure, which like this was the best case scenario of every possible thing going right. And there's just no way you'd be able to pressure this well every single time out. But I like that this, you know, if you use this as kind of like this is what we want it to look like. And if you even play like, you know, the 50th percentile version of this instead of the 100, you're creating some havoc by pressuring so much and i mean we had we knew that they were going to have to pressure to compete on stoppages throughout the ground considering they were ruckless with mark pitnett and tom the remaining out you were throwing lewis young and jack silvani in there 
and the hitouts were 70 to 18 in the Dockers' favor, and yet Carlton were plus six in clearances 41 to 35. That's a result of pressure at the source. It wasn't just that, though. It was all over the ground, especially it took until more than halfway through the first quarter for anyone to kick a goal. And it felt like Carrington should have done way more at that point because they were the forward halftime was so lopsided. A lot of times it was Rio with the ball in their own back half, but under heavy pressure, which is funny because that's a lot of times that's the thing that Frio usually does to opponents. So I really liked what I saw in that regard. Also, Adam Chera played a phenomenal game. He ended up with three assists. It's the sort of performance that, you know, you could show someone who's not very familiar with the sport this game, and they'd be able to say, okay, that guy number five is really good. Oh, wait, not Wolf. Correct. Because usually, look, when, you know, when you're new to the sport, you notice the guys who score. Like, you'd notice Charlie Curnow and Harry Mackay. Mackay had three goals and no really, like, comically bad miss. No, his drop punts were looking much better this yeah. game. Kicked 3-2 off 20 disposals. I think this, like, I know there have been games where people have been all excited for him to kick a couple. I think this was, like, his most fundamentally solid performance, though. But if you watch this game, it's like, and you had no knowledge of what was going on, you'd understand, man, every time number five gets the ball, they end up scoring. They should just give the ball to number five more, and they did. Uh, Chero with a goal, 27 disposals, nine score involvements, three assists, 708 meters gained. His ability to hit targets in the forward 50 in this game was really, really good. Chero was one of the pressure leaders as well. No surprise that Patrick Cripps and Sam Walsh got a lot of hands on it as well. And in terms of a combination of pressure and pace, I don't think you can understate the impact of Matt Cottrell returning from suspension. Cottrell is a piece that can complete the Blues forward half a lot of the time. A reasonably good carrier, decently accurate field kick, and pretty good set shot. Someone who can complement the forward group they already have. You know, you, we've been looking for solutions in the forward line other than the Colin medalists, and I think between Cottrell, Jack Martin, and when Jesse Motlop really gets back into things, those three will end up solving that problem. You know what I... The other thing I really liked about this Carlton game was it wasn't like they had to be carried by the reigning Brownlow medalist or the Coleman medalist. It was a team performance. Like, Brody Kemp had a great first quarter. I did not think he had a good second quarter, and I thought that's one of the ways that Frio could have carved a path back into this game. In the second half, he was just solid, but... If Brody Kemp is giving you one really good quarter, one really bad quarter, and two solid ones, you take that. And we talked about how much this team lacks depth past their main guys, how much their main guys have to do. Someone like Brody Kemp stepping up really changes things. And he held his own in the fourth when Mitch McGovern was out. McGovern corked his knee. They decided not to risk things from there. McGovern played really well. I'm still getting used to him without a beard. Like, I had to look at the roster every time he did something. I just remember, oh wait, that number 11 that's, that kicked that really long goal, his brother hurts his hamstring all the time. Yeah, Mitch McGovern was a target of a lot of criticism from Blues fans for a good chunk of this season. He had a much better game. For a while, Jacob Wiedering was like the one beacon of hope in that defense, and now they've got a bunch more there. I, I don't think, considering their schedule and the number of teams they have to jump, that it's likely that this team makes finals, but... I thought they had a breakthrough here that if they can use this model moving ahead, they could head into next season with a lot of steam, a lot of momentum, and a real blueprint to actually get somewhere. 
and knowing that they'll fire Michael Voss. Uh, Patrick Cripps, 29 disposals, 17 contested possessions, 10 clearances. Sam Walsh, a behind, 32 disposals. Sam Doherty, a goal, a behind, 28 disposals. Blake Akers, who really got no reaction from the crowd, uh, a behind in 23 disposals. I think the reaction was, wow, we gave up this guy and only got a third-round pick in return. Yeah. Uh, Nick Newman, 23 disposals, 11 marks. Sleeper. Matthew Kennedy, a goal, a behind, 18 disposals, 10 contested possessions. Though he did hurt his knee in the second half, and it looks like he'll be out for six weeks. Not an ACL injury, but severe enough that we may not see him again until the final couple rounds, if at all. So a path, obviously, for George Hewitt to come back into the into the mix there. And that's unfortunate because they'd realized, wait, Kennedy belongs as a midfielder, and, and he'd been playing well these past couple weeks. Yeah, I really liked his game. Adam Saad, Whoa. 18 disposals, 12 contested possessions, 12 intercepts. The Blues with 18 more inside 50s, and until the fourth quarter, it was definitely more lopsided in that regard. It was their game throughout. And really, looking at the Frio stats, it's, you know, the normal accumulators get they got stuff there. Luke Ryan with 35 disposals, 17 intercepts, 10 marks at 880 meters. The 17 intercepts is still impressive, but you also consider that the Blues scored 28 times. Also in defense, Jordan Clark with 26, 8 marks at 504 meters. I did not think he played very well despite those numbers. No, he was an accumulator. I thought he... Turn the ball over a lot. Hayden Young with 25, 8 marks and 655 meters. A bit more sound of a game from him, I'd say, than from Clark, but neither stellar. Andrew Brayshaw had 32 disposals and 17 contested possessions. Caleb Saronga behind from 24 and 8 tackles. And if Frio weren't already in a world of hurt, we are awaiting the outcome of his tribunal hearing. They are deliberating as we record. I'm expecting that this suspension will be upheld because it came against Carlton. And so that means he'd miss a game that, admittedly, they probably weren't likely to win already against Collingwood. And then Sean Darcy, 58 hitouts and 14 disposals. I imagine that he was a pretty popular fantasy pickup this week. Frio now sit at 7-9. and nine. They are behind the Suns on percentage. And seems like, you know, I think there's reason to question, like, you know, how do they feel about Justin Longmuir if the team that got the same record as you and lower expectations just can their coach. Now, I like Justin Longmuir, but I think this year, the, as a whole, Frio have deviated from what they did so well last season. I would not fire Longmuir, but I would do a little soul-searching at the end of this season and ask, you know, why did we go away from everything that we had been doing so well and what can we do moving forward? Like, I've just got a lot of questions about them. Including, why is Nathan O'Driscoll not in? Yeah, they've lost four out of five. Other than West Coast and Hawthorne, the remaining schedule is pretty tough. I just, I would not be shocked to see a change. It feels like there's so much, so much potential to do so much more here. And it just hasn't happened. All I hope is that they don't make Jamie Graham their head coach because I want him to come home to the Eagles. It's nominee time as we reach the end of this episode. So the Mark of the Week winner last week was actually Tom Barris in the pack from the side. It was mostly against Anthony Caminiti. We both preferred Oscar Allen's flying mark over Josh Battle, and I'm wondering if that didn't get as many votes because Battle got concussed? I'm not entirely clear. I feel like it, then it's like, why'd you even include that in the first place then, you know? Yeah, I mean, there was that, 
huge Brody Smith hanger in which he himself was concussed last year, and that wasn't included as a nominee. Your nominees for this round, you had Aaron Naughton over Nathan Murphy on Friday night. I mean, you have another concussing one against the Saints in this week's nominees because it was Stephen May over Zane Cordy, as we touched upon before the break. And then Luke Jackson took one over Adam Saad. I didn't think any of these were all that remarkable. Ethan? I like the main mark the most. I do too. I think it was the most athletic of the three. I'd say probably May, then Naughton, then Jackson. I think Naughton's was a bit cleaner than Jackson's. And then you have the goal nominees. And in a season where we've had some insane goals that we might need a top 10, if not a top 15 for a vote about which we might people would feel good going into Brownlow night, this may be the best crop of nominees yet this year. I do think there are better goals and better individual goals, but whatever finishes third in the voting this week will be way better than pretty much any other third place finisher. So you got Liam Baker running on into the goal square, chasing after a Jacob Hopper kick, and then kind of kicking the ball up in the air with his right foot as he's falling because he kind of got pushed by Ollie Florent. It's a hard play to describe, and it's when you kind of got to see. And then you have two from late Saturday. You've got Sam Powell Pepper turning away from Will Powell and kicking a torp on the run from 60 out. It bounced in front of the line and then got some help as Todd Marshall, Shepard, and Brandon Ellis to ensure it went through. Ellis was pretty mad about a free kick not being given to him there, but it, an insane kick nonetheless. That's like, that's an NFL audition kick right there. Yeah, the, the torp on the turn like that. The move he put on Powell was really impressive. And just the fact that he was kicking a torp from a turn in the first place. You look at what Jake Stringer did earlier this year, no, he was taking a straight line to that the whole way. And then you've got Connor Rosie taking the ball off of a 450 stoppage, running to the boundary left of the goal, and threading through a roller at an absolutely unbelievable angle. I mean, it, it pretty much went with the boundary. I, I described the angle in our notes as nearly non-existent. That's a Bravo night nominee, yes? I don't know if we can even crack the top three this year is the best part, but that is the winner. My, all three of these really good. You could argue, you can honestly make a good argument for any of them. I think I am going with Rosie as the best one here. Right now, I think I have this as number two for the year behind Will Ashcroft. I wouldn't put it up that high. I think it's still behind Maya Jack. I think Charlie Cameron's touch. I think the Charlie Cameron one timer was pretty insane too, but. Uh, you had that Powell Pepper goal against Geelong a few weeks ago. I think this is better than that, but not by a ton. Regardless, whoever wins the the film Manassa medal this year will fully earn it. May character this week. I mean, if we're going off the oval and extending the week of round 17 into Tuesday, it's got to be Stuart Dew. It doesn't have to be on the oval, but I think extending it to Tuesday is tough because like by Monday, the AFL website, shows like the upcoming week's matches. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think Stuart Dew at this By point default, I think Stuart Dew was easily our leader in the clubhouse for round 18. Yeah, so your main character instead is going to be Jack Gunston for his six-goal performance on his return from his self-imposed absence. That's a career high for him for goals, and he's now scored five goals with teams from three different states, having done it with the Crows and Hawks as well. Honorable mention, we talked about middle fingers earlier. There were some good ones in the Richmond-Sydney game. There was a great shot of a Carlton fan giving it to the crowd when he, uh, while being surrounded by Frio fans. There were some good ones in the Essendon-Adelaide game. It was just a nice, constant theme throughout the round. And then our other one that could be in it just about every week is a guy that we've come to call Magpie Jesus. 
I don't know his name, but he's awesome. He's the, the long-haired, bearded guy in the Collingwood supporter section with the retro jumper and one of the huge flags. If you don't see him during a Collingwood game, especially one in Victoria, it's quite surprising. All right, that's going to wrap this thing up. Thanks, as always, for tuning in. Thanks to Footy for being fun and giving us lots to talk about. I'm Ethan Castle. You can find me on Twitter, at Castle Media. You can find Brian Harambe, who's sleeping next to me, or he might actually be awake right now. Uh, he's on Instagram at CatNamedGrian. I am Benjamin Castle on Twitter at BenjaminHK01. Together on Twitter and YouTube, we are at American Footy. I'll be putting out a video this week, definitely this week, about where I see the looking at the looking at the finals race and their road home over the next seven weeks. And uh, yeah, that's what's been happening. And that's what will happen, I guess, in terms of the video. Thanks again.